0: This episode of the fried egg podcast is brought to you by us the fried egg We are doing a small little sale for all uh, podcast listeners If you use the code winter blues in the pro shop, you will get 10% off Uh, We've got a lot of stuff in there. We've got hoodies. We've got t-shirts. We've got hats. We've got polos uh, we also have golf course prints. We've got a lot of new prints up in the shop. If you didn't get one for Christmas and you you wanted one, and you want to spruce up your office or your your uh, you know the walls of your home, check these out. We've got over sixty courses up, and uh, we will continue to be adding to that list. So use the code Winter Blues and get ten percent off your checkout at ProShop.TheFriedEgg.com Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. I am uh, excited for this episode. It's been uh, a few years in the making. COVID kind of put a uh, pause. I wanted to get down to Arizona to see uh, David Kahn and Tim Jackson's work at Scottsdale National before I had him on. Uh, They are young, I guess young. Young is a uh, relative word in the architecture community. I said this to a friend. They're like, I I didn't know any any golf architect was young. Uh, Relatively speaking, they're young. They work for Tom Fazio. They are uh, evolved off of that tree, and uh, they are building some really thought-provoking stuff. Scottsdale National was really a cool course to see. Um, Unbelievable, the earthwork that they did to build that golf course and how real it looks. So I was uh, quite excited. Uh, We went down and spent a day with Tim and David and uh, talked a lot, and they've got some different opinions than many uh, that come on this podcast. So... It was uh, it was fun to get a little bit different perspective on golf course architecture and certainly a uh, duo that I would be looking out for and uh, excited about their future work as uh, they get more and more jobs in the coming years. So without further ado, here is David Kahn and Tim Jackson. How would you guys describe your design style?
1: never wow. asked that before. Yeah, no, I haven't either. Um, how would we describe our design style? Um, I'll, I'll say this. We, 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 I think our, our design style hopefully is we, we don't want to necessarily repeat what we've done in the past. I mean, I think there's a lot of golf course designers. Um, you could, you know, you could be air mailed into the middle of a golf course, do a 360, and know who designed the golf course. Um, just based upon the style, the features, the look, you know, when you're on a, pete die golf course there's a lot of great pete Dye golf courses you know you're on a pete Dye golf course right um when you're on a um you know a nicholas course a lot of times you know you're on a nicholas course or uh, you know a palmer course or things of that nature we we don't necessarily like to you know we try to do different things quite honestly um you know we want each project to be unique not be a replication of what's been done in the past so i mean i don't know if that's necessarily a design style but that's a thought that we have quite a bit
2: yeah, I mean, not only is it important for the client to give them something different to help their product and business differentiate from competitors, but as a designer, selfishly, it's more fun to explore new ideas. So, um, you know, I, I think we, we have overarching philosophies that apply to every project, um, but the physical manifestation of those philosophies, we hope are, you know, varied to the point where it doesn't seem like we're just copy and pasting.
0: Would you guys think it's fair to say that you'd fall into the maximalism camp?
1: What is the maximalism camp? <laughs> I, don't, I
0: don't know. You, you know, a lot of architects today identify themselves as minimalists, like where they want to move as little dirt as possible oh. and kind of let the lay of the land be the. I
2: I don't I don't know how the world out there defines maximalism, but I will say that we try very, very hard to maximize the potential of the design in every project. So if that's the definition of it, then I'd say without a doubt, we're maximalism maximalists. That does not mean we look to move the most amount of dirt in every project, but if that's what's required to maximize the potential, then absolutely we're not scared to do it.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I think that, um, and I'm going to be very honest, um, There's not a lot of designers out there that can can successfully take on a project where in order to maximize the golf potential, say you need to move four or five million cubic yards of material um, and then create great golf by doing that, right? Um, There's a lot of designers that can take a great piece of ground and design a great golf course. You know, I think once you know that you can take a piece of property – that may be featureless, um, that may not have the greatest elements, the greatest starting elements, um, and create great golf. It gets pretty easy after that, quite honestly.
0: So you think, you know, I think like conventional thought recently is like, you need a great site to build great golf. Can you build great golf anywhere?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're different, they're different, uh, you know, kind of vibes and results at the end of the day, but I think that if the desire is there from the client and if the funding is there, depending on what you're starting with at a certain point, there is money that is required to build these things. Um, then I don't think there are any
1: excuses for not being able to create something spectacular. Yeah. You know, the, um, You always want to spend the client's money as as efficiently and as responsibly as possible, right? Um, But you also want to make sure that you achieve the client's goals. And, you know, again, um, there's a starting point and there's a desired end result. And if you have the experience to understand and know what it's going to take to get from point A to point B and the client's willing to support that, um, there's no reason to, to hold back from that. Um, in our opinion, um, you know, we, we've not necessarily been blessed with the opportunity to work on a lot of amazing sites, natural sites for golf in our careers. Um, we've had to work on a number of projects, both when we were with Tom and, and as Jackson Khan, that required a lot of heavy moving have a lot of heavy lifting to create the golf, um, essentially create the environment and kind of put the golf in it, I guess, you know, for, for lack of a better term. Um, and we feel that we've been you know relatively successful with that, fortunately.
0: When when you say Tom, it's Tom Yes, 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 yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so you know, it, in terms, of, like I think, like what are the misconceptions about moving dirt to create something? What what do you guys think? Some in meeting with clients, or you know, what or just general conversation?
1: Well, you know, I think that <clears throat> I think that um, when you look about how golf is written about, and you look at uh, the golf writers that are kind of active today in golf they have collectively a very narrow bandwidth on how they feel golf should be created, right? And, and I think that um, a lot of people read that and a lot of people feel that that's the way that golf should be because they say that's the way that golf should be, right? Um, you know, the end result is really what matters. Um, and, and I'll be honest, um, you know, there's a lot of guys that we've encountered in our career, critics, who are just abhorrent at the thought that we would take a piece of ground and move the amount of dirt that we do, um, and we could take them out there and they could never tell what was a cut or what was a fill. The whole key is you have to do it on a scale that you create believability in the end result, right? Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, we've been fortunate. We were taught how to do that. You know, it's not something that I think that you, you know, just instinctively know how to do. Um, but again, you know, we had a lot of pieces of ground in our career that the um, expectations were very high as far as what the end result for golf was going to be. And the starting point was not that great.
0: I think that's something, you know, having uh senior guys work at Scottsdale national, the other course, like something that. You know, when you think manufactured golf, you kind of, like, my mind goes to containment mounds, and you get those, like, 8- to 10-foot containment mounds down the right or the left side, and, you know, a little mound here. Something that kind of, like, what amazed me, what you just said, is making it look real and the scale of it, you know, can you talk about that? Like, what what have you guys learned to make stuff look real that is very manufactured, you know, in, in essence, like it's completely created, but it looks like it's been there for a long time.
2: So, you know, in order to trick, trick the human mind, it has to be built at a scale large enough where you can't immediately or ever perceive, you know, that dirt was actually moved at, at that immense scale and what I mean by that is, you know, like to your point, the the old kind of 1980s shaping, where it's just mounds left and right of the golf hole. There, you can clearly see the man made, very rhythmic, um, very engineered slope. You're like clearly, man touched that, and and that doesn't in and of itself make it bad, but it's it's just striking to the eye. It's like, well, that's somebody built that, and and in 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 our minds, and we learned a lot, uh, you know, working with. Tom and, and, and senior designers there, when you move dirt, when you have to move dirt, when you need to move dirt, move it at a scale large enough. And, and what I mean by that is don't just necessarily do it within one golf hole, have that cut, have that fill, you know, transition from one to another, to a third, maybe a fourth golf hole. Um, and when it's done at that large of a scale, it looks like a very natural landform. Um, obviously the shape and aesthetic and, and, you know, the, the contouring of that movement has to be done in a very organic and natural way and not very rhythmic, like I said, and not engineered constant planes, constant slopes are immediately scream, you know, engineered. And like I said, I, I love Pete Dye work and he did a lot of that, um, angular, very sharp contouring and, and it's, it's awesome. Um, you know, it's just not the, the style, I guess, to go back to your first question of, of, you know, what appeals to our eye, um. And, and that's something we did on the other course of Gastel National is really, really large cuts, really, really large fills, not not vertically, but also horizontally.
1: Well, and I think, too, I guess the most succinct way of saying it is that you have to manufacture it in a way that looks as natural as possible. When it's all said and done. Right. And, and a lot of that is how it's put back together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's always the, the base movement that you're creating, the cuts, the fills, the elevations. Um, but then what do you do with those, those cuts and those fills and elevations when it's all said and done? What's the vegetation that goes back in, you know, what's the, you know, the, uh, the, the, rock worker in the, in the, you know, in the essence of Scottsdale national, You know, we had to blast the lake into the the irrigation lake, um, you know, into the ground with, I think it was a 60 foot cut to the bottom of the irrigation lake, hit bedrock at 18 inches, inches, right? So that was, you know, uh, 58 and a half feet of rock that needed to be excavated out of there. That rock was repurposed around the golf course and placed in a way that it actually added and enhanced and made the environment look more natural than if we didn't have that. I mean, there's so many areas of Scottsdale National that are so heavily manufactured and, and nobody knows they feel, you know, one of the best compliments I think we had from Rand Morris said is everyone's going to think you guys had this amazing site for golf because the end result looks so real and it looks so natural and it is real. I mean, it is real. It, it's yeah, just, yeah. you know,
2: you know, the, the interesting thing about all the rock out there was in our initial budget, we had, we were bringing in rock from off site because we, we always wanted that look to kind of match the natural surroundings. Um, we had no idea that we were sitting on solid bedrock. And so when we started making the cut for the lake and we found that Mother Earth right underneath there, 18 inches down, you know, immediately we were like, well, stop stop ordering the, the truckloads of rock to come in and we have it all right here. And so, you know, we utilized that kind of happy accident and, and repurposed that all over the property to, uh, yeah. to kind of amenitize the landscape and, and, you know, make it a believable landscape. And on the landscape architect, Pinnacle Design, that was involved in that project was equally as important to making that scene in that environment believable. Because so we could have built all the cool landforms in the world, um, but if you top that, like Tim said, with the with the wrong vegetation or just kind of poor planting or really manufacture kind of we call it the bad hair transplant, equally spacing, equally sized plants, then it just it, it ruins the whole effort.
0: You know, it, golf architecture likes to be considered an art, but what you just hit on is it, it, an interesting you know divergence from so many other forms like if you're a painter you just you sit in your house and paint stuff and then people buy it and then maybe you start to do some custom commissions right like really successful painters though just paint stuff but golf like you're you're always tied to what an owner a developer uh, a client a committee wants so in a way your your art form is Somewhat constrained, right?
1: Well, you 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 try to choose the projects I think where it's least constrained, hopefully. Um, But there's considerations. There's always compromising considerations along the way, right? Um, You can't design in a bubble. You can't design in a vacuum. Um, And you know, it's um, you know, we understand that many of the clubs that we work with now. Um, you know, existing clubs, um, you know, there's, there's members that are very passionate about their golf courses. Right. And, um, you have to, you know, you have to be able to take what they feel they want their golf course to be and, you know, show them what you think the potential could be. And then you try to bridge that gap a lot of times, cause there's a, a pretty big disconnect at times as far as what that might be
0: with, uh, with kind of maximalism. I'm curious, you know, in, in creating these environments, you know, maintenance, And, you know, I think a lot of people assume if you move a lot of dirt, then you're going to have a higher maintenance budget. Is that true? No,
2: not at all. No. You may have a slightly higher construction cost, maybe. I mean, in the the big scheme of things, when you're building the golf course, moving dirt is not a big line item. Blasting, you know, dealing with rock absolutely is. Um, But just moving the dirt is not is not that expensive. It's again, it, it's what you put on top of it. How many square feet, how many acres of turf do you have? How many square feet, acres of bunkers, how many square feet, acres of greens? That's what matters. It doesn't matter if you found that site as is, and you grassed it and, and you know, that maintenance is pretty much the exact same uh, as opposed to if you manufactured it. If you have the same amount of square footage of golf at the end of the day, doesn't matter how you got there the maintenance the maintenance starts at that point forward so it's it's it's
1: independent
2: yeah, um, it, of, in part, the,
1: of the earthwork. A lot of it goes into how well golf course is, is constructed as far as what the maintenance requirements are that follow, right? Um, and I'm gonna give you a prime example between maximalism and minimalism with that, okay? Um, so, you know, again, one of the things that we learned from Tom Fazio is that the infrastructure that you put in the ground supports what you do on top of that. And if you don't get the foundation right, you're gonna have issues after the fact, right? Um, so, you know, we know, we feel like we know what it takes um, from a irrigation standpoint, from a drainage standpoint, the things that the members never see um, to be able to have a successful project. Um and we work with the golf course superintendents. My degree is in agronomy, it's not in landscape architecture. I right? so I'm a turf ed, so I'd love talking with those guys. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it affects what we do from a design standpoint sometimes. We have a lot of conversations about maintenance and, and what that what that means. Um, but we always try to give them what they need to be successful to support the design. So there's a very well-known architect who did a project out west and and he wanted irrigation spacing in a desert environment um high desert environment um that was going to create dry areas and and wet areas because he didn't want everything perfectly green right minimalist designer minimalist design i don't want perfect irrigation spacing because i want this browned out looking areas right no understanding of what that was going to do to the golf course superintendent when the members came to him and said why does the golf course look this way right the 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 minimalist architect dictated the irrigation design in a way that was going to create so much more maintenance for the golf course superintendent because his guys were going to be out there on hoses hand watering areas because the members would never have accepted that. Right. Um, we recognize the fact that we want to support the golf course superintendents of what they need to achieve the expectations. It's not always about us at the end of the day, we want to give them what they need, but there's a minimalist designer. Um, and that was his thought and he was going to create far, far more maintenance for the superintendent when it was all said and done.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, in, in, to kind of oversimplify it, you can put more money into the construction to then reduce maintenance needs moving forward. So you know it's 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 not the minimalism; it's absolutely maximalism. But you know it, that can be in any aspect of life, not just golf. You know, you can put it into your house, more sustainability. You can put solar on your roof. Well, that costs a lot, but look, now you have no power bill moving forward. So there are ways, you know, with the construction of the golf course, with better irrigation system, you know, better spacing, better head control all that stuff that costs an arm and a leg to put in up front but you know that that pays dividends in the long run well
0: i i always like I, everybody always like oh good architecture costs more money but like when you look at it from the design standpoint and no. building it's something that's it's built all, really sound it's construction you know, it costs. Actually, good construction costs yeah, more. it actually saves you a lot of money in the long run because if it if it if it cuts your maintenance bill by a hundred thousand dollars for 30 years you're you're probably high-fiving you know about Hey, we saved some money.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. yeah, So it's, you know, for us, again, it's, 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 it's not maximalism versus it's getting it right, you know, quite honestly. And, you know, again, you know, hopefully working with clients, to have the resources to be able to build something correctly
2: and getting it right for that client and, you know good or bad it that's that's what we do we work for a client we're not we're not an artist just going in our basement and drawing on a canvas and saying i like it it's that would be great but we don't have that much money to just go and you know buy hundreds of acres of land and just kind of fiddle around. So we are at the end of the day, working for somebody that has to meet some degree of a bottom line. And it's our responsibility and task to be able to maximize those opportunities with staying within that constraint and those realities.
0: So, yeah, you know, I think uh, I would love to hear who this is a question I love to ask architects and uh, I've been particularly interested with your guys' answer, who's on your Mount Rushmore of golf architecture? So you get four spots, right? I want to hear who who you guys' uh, Mount Rushmore of golf architects is.
2: For me, Mike Strantz would have the biggest head chiseled in the mountain. Um, I'll have to think about it. I, I would put Pete Dye up there as well. Um, I tend to gravitate toward the guys that break the mold and are risk takers and probably half the population dislikes them and the other half love them. So I I, kind of like those polarizing figures. Um, You know, the safe designers that go down the middle of the road and and have a long, successful career. I just, I don't, I don't, you know, to me, they don't move the needle enough to kind of admire um, their, their talent and their courage. Um, I mean,
0: in a way design should be slightly provocative.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's my opinion that the best designs out there are, some of the most controversial as well. I mean, honestly, because again, if it's plain Jane, it may be good, maybe, you know, good agronomic conditions. It may be a cool environment, but if it's not really pushing buttons and making you think and question and stopping in your tracks, and it's just, I think it's missing the mark. Um, you know, strategies, getting, getting the math of golf is very black and white to us. It's very straightforward. Um, once we know those, numbers are correct. And we know a hazard wants to go here and it wants to be about yay big, yay long, yay wide. You know, once you have that, that's where the fun begins. It's not like, Hey, just go put a circle bunker there and call it a day. It's like, no, okay. We've positioned it correctly. So it's going to play right. Now let's build the art. What are people going to look at and get excited about? Because, you know, Tim has this kind of saying a lot. I'm surprised he hasn't said it yet, but, and I'll probably butcher it. But, you know, when you stand on a golf tee or, uh, you know, a golf hole, the majority of golfers cannot even understand strategy they don't it doesn't register and then the few that actually do understand it a very small percentage of them can even execute so now you're looking at let's just call it 95 percent of golfers in the world are literally just there enjoying the scene and trying to hit a golf ball that they can find the next shot so you know we don't put all effort into the beauty we put equal effort into getting the math right, getting the strategy, the options, right. And then really focusing on the art because that's what people engage with. Yeah.
0: We're, we're going to get back to the Mount Rushmore thing. I'm not letting you off the hook that easy, but something you talked about that I want to touch on while we're here, you talked about having to push the boundaries, how having to build provocative stuff. What's an example of something that you built that was particularly provocative.
1: Well, I think that, you know, for us, probably the prime example is the, uh, is, you know, the bad little nine is coastal national. Um, you know, the, the, the concept behind it, um, you know, initially, you know, for Mr. Parsons was to create, you know, essentially a course that could be set up as the hardest bar three course in the world, um, which doesn't sound like a lot of fun, right. In and of itself. Um, but when you're out there and it's set up on Fridays on challenge days um, and you see members and their guests having just the most amazing time you know watching a guy you know hit it to you know 15 feet and walk off a green with a 12. you know it doesn't sound fun but it is it really is because of the challenge that's there the hardest part for us and dave talks about the math of golf course architecture golf course design um, was finding the margin between almost impossible and impossible um, on the on the bad little nine because impossible is not fun but almost impossible is fun in that particular environment. Right. So, um, and, you know, and we took a lot of heat for this when we, when we talked about this from certain components of the minimalist architecture group, you know, we have a young man that works for us and, 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 and he had a video game that he could build basically golf in. And, and so he built the bad little nine in this golf game and just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of shots were hit to try to find those margins between impossible and almost impossible. Now it's a, you know, it's not the classic way of designing golf. It's using, you know, new technologies and tools. Um, but it worked, it worked in the end result, you know, kind of, kind of showed that.
0: Do you think that's actually a, you know, a way forward sometimes for design is, is using these video games. Do you think that's a effective like means for if you're, you know, building a course like, Try doing that and trying it out before you put it into it, the ground.
2: Yeah, I, it is. And, and it is for two reasons. One and probably the most important is to be able to communicate to an owner or a client or a group of owners, what the vision is. It's, it's, you could say a thousand words to an owner explaining your vision and they, it, it's not going to register. But if you show them a picture, if you show them a video if you show them a 3d space, they're gonna, they're gonna get it. So it's very valuable from that respect. But the other one is if you truly are trying to create something different that there are no case studies for, you can't go step on properties and analyze the contouring and the spaces to then, all right, we're going to, you know, glean some information here and then go apply it in a new way. When you're, when you're searching for that needle in the haystack of something different, experimenting and exploring that in a, in a, in a virtual space, pretty much the only way you can do it. And, and thankfully we live in a, in a time where the physics of a video game are real. And so, you know, it it wasn't just guessing that slopes needed to be certain, certain severities and and spaces need to be a certain size to be able to make those shots work. It, It was, it was proving it out for us. And then we took that new math And we're able to bring that in the dirt and make it come real.
1: And it it was still just a foundation, though, too. I mean, you know, whether it's in a video game, whether it's a plan on a desk, um, you you need to do it in the dirt and you need to do it in the field. But you have to have a starting point, right? Um, And for many architects, the starting point is the, you know, the plan that they draw, the grading plan that's on a piece of paper. You give it to the contractor, they go out there and they stake it out and they start doing cuts and fills or whatever it may be. This was just different. Our starting point was was this video game. We still made adjustments. We still modified it in the dirt. We still spent a ton of time out there making sure that it looked the way we wanted it to look and it played the way that we wanted it to play. Um, but it was just a different way of going about it. But we didn't. Again, we didn't. We wanted to make sure we got it right. You know, um, when we told Bob about the concept, um, you know, we kind of pitched it to him, Bob, you know, it's, it's going to be so tough if a member, you know, shoots par or better, um, you know, they're going to get free dues for a year. And he's like, ah, little, little much on that one, guys, right? So, you know, it's a $1,000 on Friday. And he looked at his boys. I don't want to write a th- lot of $1,000 checks, right? Um, but you still have to, you still have to have it be, <laughs> you know, the goal is you have hope. It's achievable. And it is. And someday someone will do it. Some days no yeah. one's done it yet when it's been set up the way it's supposed to be set up properly, but someday someone will do it um, because the opportunity is there because we got the math, right?
0: Just have to be kind of perfect for you yes. Throw no hitter. Pretty
1: much. Yeah. He had a, he had a great
2: phrase to me once. Uh, he's like, you know, some, somebody will do it one time and I'll pay up. And, uh, and if that happens the next time, I just, I won't cut a hole on the ninth green. <laughs> no one will do it again. <laughs>
0: With uh, you know, it's obviously the bad little nine, and I think like other short courses are in similar veins. Like you see a lot bigger, more daring design that pushes boundaries. What is it about par three courses that uh, play golfers accept those boundaries being pushed that they then turn around and reject them? On a, on a standard golf course,
2: I don't know what it is about it, but there's a stigma, especially in this country, about eighteen holes, you know, par seventy two, seventy two hundred yards, or I don't want to play it. Um, it's it's an unfortunate truth, um, all, all too often. And I think I think the exact opposite is viewed for par three courses. They almost undervalue them and think it's that's not real golf, so they don't really care if you're kind of breaking the mold there. And I hope I hope that we're in a transition where that type of creativity and different is going to be more accepted in, in let's call it more, you know, big boy golf. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, we're, we're all, I think we're all playing golf to enjoy it and have fun. Um, but there's just something about the golfer that just loves, loves that misery and, um so anyway so um yeah I, I just think it's I think par 3 courses are just not really regarded as real golf courses so they just kind
1: of let it slide. Yeah you know and I think that um it goes back to what Dave mentioned too I mean we're most of the projects they work on we're beholden to a membership we're beholden to an owner um, and, and, you know, memberships as a whole are pretty risk averse <laughs> as far as that goes. Um, and I'm sure, you know, you know that and understand that and, and appreciate that. And we certainly do, um, you know, working on a project in, in Louisiana right now, and it's, it's just for a couple of brothers. Um, and it's, you know, it's going to end up being probably, you know, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 greens, whatever it is. And it's on about 30 to 35 acres of land and all grass, interconnected fairways, and, 70 acres. There's well, a big, there's 35 a big acres of fairways, yeah. right. Yeah. But the, um but point being is like, we're having so much fun, so much fun down there because like you throw the rules out, you know, and and they want something that is stunning. They want something that they can take their buddies out there and, you know, and have fun with and, um, and brag about and, you know, to some extent. And, um, but you can, you can just be so much more creative Mm -hmm. in that type of environment. You can be so much more creative because I think the, you know, the expectation is a little bit different. Um, you know, when you're, when you're working on a, say a top hundred club and you're doing a master plan, I mean, there's a mold that's kind of expected to be fit as far as what you're going to do. There's not a lot of clubs that are going to kind of hit the reset button and let you blow it up. Right. Um, you may feel, you may know in your heart, um, at the end of the day, that if you had that opportunity, you feel like there'd be a, it might be a better golf course there. Right. Um, but, um, you know, it just comes down to whether or not you can ever actually get to that point because they are so risk adverse.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting with, with clubs and, you know, you guys have worked with clubs, committees, you've worked for single owners like Bob Parsons, like I think everybody has seen his commercials, uh, PXG, and obviously a brash guy. You worked with these, you're working with these brothers, you know. I guess, you know, in your experience, is there different setups that work better in certain cases? Is there different, you know, are there personality traits that you notice with, you know, owners that, you know, kind of is it hands off better, or very involved better? Like, is there, you know, situations that promote, you know, better work?
2: I'll answer my opinion. Um, without a doubt, a dictator is the best. Even, even a dictator with a bad attitude, I would take personally over a committee. Um, and, and, and if we're, if we're being just truly honest, I mean, a dictator that's hands off. I mean, you know, if, if they feel they have hired a knowledgeable, talented um, person or team, let that talented person or team do their work. Um, and, and, you know, I think, I think from a creative standpoint, um, the experts in the field, in in any field excel when left to do their work.
1: Uh, you know, I'll, you know, we, we, it's been kind of across the board, right? In my opinion, um, MPCC, we had a great group of guys that we worked with there that we were fortunate to work with there that were very supportive, you know, of what we felt we wanted to do from a design standpoint and what we wanted to do from a design standpoint was very different from the golf course that they had and the members played. And, and, and so we had a lot of, you know, we, it was, it was a, it was a good experience. I mean, you know, they, um, they just wanted the best golf that they could have. And you know, we've had other clubs that we work with that wring their hands over whether that nose in the bunker is going to be two feet this way or two feet that way. It's just, it's not a lot of fun when you're, you know, when you're kind of going through that process. Um, and, and so, you, you know, it's it's certainly more the more freedom that we have as designers. I think in any, not just golf course architecture, golf course design. I think any designer, the more freedom they have, they feel, the feel the better result they feel they can produce. Again, if the client wants what he feels they have to offer, right? Um, and so it's you know it, it 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 it's pretty rare though. You know, I mean that's the lesser condition. Mm-hmm when you have those opportunities, um, in this project in Louisiana, for example, is just, it's, yeah. you know, right down the, right down the hammer. Um, the guys are great and they're just like, you guys give us the most amazing golf that we can possibly have on this property, which is awesome.
0: I love to Talk, you know, with MPCC, obviously anybody that, you know, Monterey Peninsula country club, it's, it's right next to Cyprus. It's right next to pebble beach. Yeah, so, you know, you know, your neighbors, you know where it is. It's right on the, uh, right on the Pacific ocean. You know, creating in that environment versus creating, say in Scottsdale, like where you had a very flat desert site, you know, a lot of it was graded out for home. So it was dead flat, you know, to talk about creating in an environment that's already like very beautiful and aesthetically pleasing versus creating from kind of almost nothing.
1: Well, you know, I, I, I mean, obviously, the Monterey Peninsula is one of the most beautiful places on the face of the Earth, right? So, I mean, you, you know, your again, your starting point is relatively strong. Um, you know, MPCC, um, you know, Seth Rayner routed it, um, and then you know, really, you know, passed away before any detail work was from a design standpoint, and the club doesn't have you know, a tremendous history on how they pretty much got from that routing to the golf course they played. Right. Um, And and they've, they've tried over the years to try to, you know, kind of figure that out to to varying degrees of success. But, um, you know, we, we actually have, you know, plans where we were rerouting the golf course at MPCC. They have the, the, the point Joe range and, you know, there's five acres of land down at the ocean. like you guys have a practice facility up here, but we couldn't find better golf quite honestly. Right. So we, we kind of fell back, you know, on Rainer's routing. Um, but it was, um, you know, it was a complete re detailing of every golf hole elevations, um, you know, green contours locations. And really, you know, there wasn't any, you know, in that instance, any Seth Rainer, um, in MPCC other than the routing, right. As much as that, I guess, is a calling card or an identifiable characteristic from a design standpoint. Um, and, and so, you know, for us, it was uh, it was relatively easy, I think. And, and maybe Dave can, you know, maybe he doesn't feel that way. But when we, like, toured the golf course and we were asked to come up and take a look at it, it was like we, it didn't mm-hmm. take us long to figure out the, what we thought. The images started appearing in our head right away. Right. Yeah. and And, you know, and they had, you know, again, they had, Um, They had very identifiable goals. Um, They had to reduce the amount of turf grass that they were irrigating. There's a finite amount of water on the Monterey Peninsula. The seven courses share essentially a certain allotment. Um, And there's some years where, hey, if the water runs out, there's no more water, right? So every square foot of turf grass, um, you know, was important to them as far as how much they had out there and how they were going to operate. And it's very expensive water. Um, Coachella Valley, um, you know, the, the aquifer that underlays that is massive. Um, and you know the golf courses in the Coachella Valley, basically for an acre foot of water, um, spend about I don't know maybe eighty or hundred dollars. It's a replenishment fee for three hundred twenty-five thousand gallons of water. That same amount of water on the Monterey Peninsula costs over five thousand um, dollars. So you know it was really critical for them that you know that money was well spent. They had a great golf course, but it was going to be sustainable for them moving forward. So for us, that meant taking the areas that we took turf grass away within what we did from a design standpoint and and making it a positive, not a negative. And, you know, for us, it was like, Hey, this is the dunes course, right? Let's, let's create more dunes. Right. And a lot of it's manufactured. It really is. But again, when you go out there and you play the golf course, um, not a lot of people would know that if they didn't know the story, if they weren't told. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was taking a need that the club had, making it an opportunity um you know with all within all the other re-detailing that we did from a golf design standpoint but to actually enhance that environment and just you know further separate it from the short course that was like a really really strong um expectation from the club is that the short course that mike Stranded, which is just amazing and just a tremendous golf course and, and i know dave's a big fan as well but they wanted something completely different they wanted two distinctly different designs and that was important to them
2: yeah, it's I I vividly remember the first time after touring the property, I kinda felt gypped. And I and I turned to Tim, I'm like, It's the dunes course. Like where the F were the dunes? I <laughs> didn't see any dunes. So it's like you know, so right away it's like we gotta we gotta create dunes, you know, and, and again, do them at a scale big enough and believable enough, and we had great templates, you know, right along that stretch of of seventeen uh, mile drive to kinda um, inspire us of how to create them because they have to fit. If you build dunes that look out of place there, that is a major eyesore. So, um, again, the same, same landscape architect, pinnacle design helped out kind of vegetating on top of the landforms that we created. Um, you know, and, and, and so it's
0: like back of nine, that's a created dune, right?
2: That one was, was there was okay. natural, okay. but what we did, it was, it was severely overgrown. I mean, we, cleaned it out and kind of made it, you know, a little bit more presentable. Um, the, uh, you know, the one off of the T on 11 was there, um, really 12 and 13 were, were, were the, and, and some of 15 around mm-hmm. the tees where that's where kind of the heavy lifting was done to kind of make more, um, more length of dune, more holes that ran through the dune environment.
0: In that area before was a little bit more subtle and kind of, Wavy, if you would say, and then it's creating more of that big dunescape that you you saw in just little pockets around the course.
2: Yeah, there were, yeah, there were little pockets, and now it goes from nine through the tees on seventeen. So I mean, there's a there's a good chunk of the golf course that meanders through this dune environment and, and onto the coast on on the fourteenth hole, and um, so it was a it was a really uh, you know we felt much needed um, detail. Um, to kind of you know make the make the course fit its name,
0: <laughs> with uh, you know it, it, somebody like me, I who big admirer of golden age design, big Seth Raynor fan. You know, I look at the Dunes course, and you know I, uh, immediately I would be like, oh, this should be restored. It's Seth Raynor on on the coast, but just you know, this is not about that. But more so, the question. In your guys' opinion, are too many courses restored that should be renovated?
2: I, You know. <laughs> the simple answer is probably yes. But, I mean, we don't have enough personal experience to kind of know what went into other mm-hmm. other projects to really, you know, make a valid, um, truthful comment on that. But uh, I think a lot of times clubs, you know, something we did at MPCC, we asked them right off the bat, do you want this to be a restoration, you know? Well, the and, key, and so the that key directive BC- came from the club. Like, right. no, we want the best course possible.
0: Exactly. Like, and anybody that ever had an issue with it, like, the club made the decision. Right. You know, they hired you guys yeah. to renovate.
1: Well, here's the key, too, though, right? I mean, in, in, oh, man, so many times, like, there was no rain or detail back, to say. the golf holes as well, right? Um, he, he, he passed, he routed the golf course and he passed away, right? So anyone that would come in, you know, the, the architect that was there in the 1995 restoration or project you know, said he was doing a Seth Raynor type of golf course. Right. And you played that golf course. You're like, no, that is his golf course. Cause you could go see that golf course, a hundred other different places. And it kind of looks the same. Right. Um, you know, if anyone would ever, and this is kind of interesting when you're doing a, we've only been asked to do one restoration as Jackson Cow Design. We restored Sunnylands, which was Dick Wilson's project for Walter Annenberg in Rancho Mirage, California. Um and it's an amazing property and has this amazing history, and the Annenbergs were incredible people. And what it's transformed into is just this um, you know, uh really, really cool um it's uh, a museum. Yeah, museum, essentially. So they wanted a museum quality restoration, right? So um, at Sunnylands and, you know, Dick Wilson passed away in 1965. I was born in 1974. Dave was born in 79, 1979, right? So, I mean, he was, he was, you know, long gone before we came into this world. Um, and, and so you always go back now, okay, you, 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 research, what can we find? Right. Aerial photography, old plans, notes, green sketches, whatever it may be. Um, and there was really a dearth of information on, on Sunnylands. There wasn't a whole lot there. Um, Uh, robert von haege had inherited dick wilson's design firm essentially and all you know he had a fire in his office in texas in 1981 and a lot of of that history was lost right so we found like one plan routing plan number two we found uh, some old aerial photography from um you know riverside county um and we found the old golf course superintendent tony quayar who was 91 years old and still taking care of a golf course and and that was all we really had to go off of right to to do this museum quality restoration We went and looked at three courses that we thought were kind of the most original Dick Wilson designs that were still left, Um, but we had to make a lot of assumptions, right? We had to design in the style of Dick Wilson as opposed to true restoration. So many times when I think golf course designers say they're doing a restoration, They don't. They don't really restore exactly what was there, nor could they, quite honestly, right? And if anyone would go back to one of our projects and say, hey, we found a Jackson Con design plan for whatever project it is, and the golf course that's there today is not that, we wouldn't expect it to be because we make so many changes in the field, right? We make um, so many adjustments and you have to, you can't, you can't draw something on on paper and have it turn out nearly as good as being out there in the field with the shapers and making those adjustments. So to me, it's kind of like, you know, all right, well, If they go back to the plans, well, who's to say that those architects didn't make those adjustments in the field that, you know, and if you're going back to a planner, you're really doing a restoration. When you're looking at an aerial um, photograph, you're looking at it two dimensionally, right? There's no third dimension in that, right? So there's so much assumption that goes back into it to me. We don't, you know, and if, if a client comes to us and says, we want you guys to do a restoration, we're, we're like we're not your guys, right? And we try to be very honest about that. Now, at Sunnylands, you know, we were young designers. We were just starting. and It was a great opportunity. We had fun doing it. Mm-hmm. We really did. And we did it as faithfully as we could. We had to write a 110-page paper on how we were going to restore nine holes of golf that were built in 1965, right?
0: It's uh yeah I I think like people think because you get the plans it's all we have the sketches but it's it's like anything like I can't imagine somebody wrote you know bands write a song and it's perfect right away right like right. they they play the song over and over and over again and make little tweaks to you know little parts of the song little lyric here uh, you know a uh, you know. Um, note here whatever you would say yeah, right and, oh. I, and I, I wouldn't and say it's like the same thing with a right. green right sure. okay we like the green here but it might be you know this uh this might be a little harsh right even
2: even if you stumbled on the most intricate plans the most detailed plans the as built plans photos 3d models you still have to ask yourself is that the best it can be and and i don't i don't i don't know i know we ask that um, to ourselves and of our clients, but I don't know if other architects ask that to their clients. I, I don't know. So, so to answer your first question from a ago, you know, I, I don't, and my hunch is that too many courses are being restored. That could be better. Um, but I don't know the
1: ins and outs of every decision. Well, and, and I, I, I do think there are certain golf courses that, you know, um, historically for whatever reason, I mean, Hey, they, they probably should be restored, right? Um, you know, the question is who's going to do it and how faithful are they going to be? Um, you know, there's, there's been, you know, some courses in, you know, I live in Southern California that have in relatively recent history been quote unquote restored. Right. Um, and you go out there and look at it and you look at, you know, all the information that's available and you're like, ah, I mean, kinda right. But not necessarily faithfully. Right. And it's hard, right. Every designer, like we're, we're all biased whether we admit it or not. Right. I mean, we see things a certain way um you know even when we restored sunnylands i mean you know you know it was we were doing our best they could have 10 different architects with the same information
2: restore the same course and you're going to get 10 variations of that Mm -hmm. and that's not a bad thing but that's the truth and because you're restoring because we're not not. restoring a
0: course from 1920 and it's like And if if we dug, I think this is what everybody struggles with. Is like, well, should I keep leave the bunker here? But the intent was for that to be off the tee, and I could move it thirty yards up into this other hill, and you know, have it. You know, and if you could
2: reincarnate Dick Wilson and bring him back in two thousand and ten and do that restoration, he would have a different iteration of it. I guarantee. I don't know how it would vary, but it would. It's human nature.
0: I think this. Like, I think restoration. I think the boom of restoration. I, I don't think there's that many great restoration opportunities anymore. I think the big next wave is renovation with a lot of courses coming like that yeah, rebuilt in nineteen sixty, reimagining these golf courses, reimagining even older courses, like some, you know, golden age courses that maybe is Tom Bendelow. No offense to I'm not trying to drive by Tom Bendelow, but you know, we've got this Tom Bendelow course, like what can we do? Reimagine this. You know, With, like, the housing golf courses, do you have any, you know, ideas around, like, how would you make a a golf course with houses and water on, uh, houses on one side, water on the other? How do you make, how would you reimagine those? Do you, do you, have you thought about that at all? Is it obviously site-specific, site-specific, but, like, just generally?
1: Well, I, you know, it, it is so site-specific, I mean, um... I'll say this, I mean, we're, you know, we're fortunate to be in a position and, and this is one of the things Mr. Fazio taught us and this is one of the things he told us specifically when we started JacksonCon Design was make sure you guys choose your clients as much as they choose you, right? And if you're able to do that. Um, you know, you're able to involve yourself in projects that are engaging, that hold your interest and that you think you can have a positive outcome on. Right. Um, you know, I don't know if we would be the guys to look at a Tom Bendelow golf course with houses on one side and water another and, and come up with something that we feel that we would, you know, be happy with the end result. Right. And, um, you know, when you really think about it, when you really think about the, the true amount of quality, great courses in the United States of America versus how much banal architecture is out there, um, man, there's, there's there's, not a lot of truly, truly, truly great stuff. And I think there's more of it now over this last 25 years with a lot of courses that have been built.
0: I'd be remiss, you know, I think most people know Bob Parsons. He's a brash personality, obviously extraordinarily successful uh, businessman, you know, was in the military. Uh, also, you know, he got into golf. He's, he loves golf and he's got a golf equipment company. Uh, and he decided to, you know, build his golf paradise effectively. I think, you know, I'm really curious how it was working with Bob Parsons just because, you know, I think a lot of people probably see the commercials think, oh, okay, but like, what was the experience like for you guys working with him as a, as an owner?
2: Wonderful. Um, for the most part, uh, for, for all the part, actually, um, you know, he was a dream client. To be frank, it, you know, never talked about budget once. Um, only wanted the best. Um, was very interested in our ideas, um, but but very quick to say if he wasn't on board with those ideas, which completely fair. Um, you know, he's 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 a bit of a wild card, so we were always on eggshells at at, at times. But um, you know, there was a, a mutual trust gained, um, you know, over time, and and he allowed us to spread our wings and maximize the opportunity for him on that property. So, um, you know, being able to have an unlimited budget is awesome, but being able to have unlimited creativity is way better. If you have unlimited creativity in a small budget, you can still create awesome golf. Obviously the, 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 the budget was, was so big because of the starting point. And his expectations. I mean, they were worlds apart. We started with a dirt parking lot, with not one piece of vegetation, and so you know his expectation of what was built that required a certain amount of capital. So, um, you know, thankfully, you know, he never once questioned or whittled down our vision to you know meet some some desired number, um, and uh, he just let us he let us go and. And really didn't want to see it until we could surprise them at the end.
0: What's an example of having unlimited creativity at the at Scottsdale National? That like in in for most people, obviously, will never see this golf course. But like, if you could explain like what you were able to do that, you know, because you had this unlimited. Freedom of creativity. Yeah, I mean, the
2: surface is simply just, you know, not micromanaging, not saying, you know, you can't put any bunkers at 220 yards, or I don't want anything on the right side of the golf hole, or, um, you know, just kind of armchair architecting, mm-hmm. um, which which we get a lot in most all of our projects. It's, it's the nature of the business, especially in the renovation world, where there's already, you know, a golf course and an expectation, and you're changing it. Even if you're changing it for the better, it's change, Right. Um, you know, so, so not having that, that, um, that leash, you know, allowed us to explore ideas of how we were going to achieve his goals for the project, um, and, and do some bold and brash things to meet his personality. So, you know, nine foot false, false fronts on the fifth green, for example, which is also 22,000 square feet. Um, you know, a a lot of sand, a lot of, a, a lot of strategic impactful sand, Um, a lot of visual sand, um, you know, just just the boldness of, of the golf, the, the strength at times of the visuals, um, you know, the blasting that we had to do, we had to do 75 plus dynamite blasts to build that thing. And that was never a topic of conversation with them. It's like, you gotta do, you do it, do what you need to do. Um, so, you know, that, that is an incredible opportunity where there was really, if we felt it was the best idea and we knew how to make it happen, we went and made it happen and versus having to go back to a committee and say, Hey, we have this thought, what do you think of this? And then it's, it's a powwow for two weeks and then, you know, it just gets watered down or, or not done at all, or, or maybe it does happen. But, um, with Bob, it was, it, it was not the idea will
0: change, you know? Once there's conversation, you know, almost like when it's just a, Hey, we're going to do this We're it it becomes your vision. And like, you know, when there's collaborate, collaboration can make things better.
2: Absolutely. But
0: it also can divert it and send it down some trail that it, it it just basically takes an idea and moves in a different
1: direction. Well, and you know, and Bob had some overarching goals for, for the golf at Scottsdale national and he express those to us very clearly as mm-hmm. far as what he wanted. Um, but then, you know, once we had those marching orders, I mean, everything after that was really kind of left to our devices to achieve that for yeah. him.
2: They were very broad strokes and, and those were our, that was our Bible and, and every decision we made needed to kind of fall into one of those buckets, but they were very freeing buckets, um, in, in order we could have executed them in, in
1: a, in a myriad of ways. And, um, well, and Bob, you know, he does have a brash personality, but he's actually one of the most charitable people and has a heart of gold and wouldn't want anybody to know that. <laughs> but yeah. um, he, he's actually he's actually a great human being. He really is. Um, but we were you know, we were for at that stage in our careers. We could not have asked for a better owner or a better opportunity, quite frankly. Um, and, you know, it was you know, it was, it was, it was touch and go for a while. And and Bill Corr, you know, gave us a tremendous, um, you know, kind of, um, endorsement, um, to Bob, to allow us to have that opportunity, which we, you know, we had the opportunity to to thank him. Um, you know, and which was, you know, that he, you know, just, we were really, really blessed, really fortunate.
0: Yeah. Like how did that opportunity come about? Like, I mean, obviously I think one of the things from from Bob's perspective is like he did, you know, in a way, take a little bit of a risk too, which I think, you know, him as an entrepreneur, someone who bucked the trend and did something different probably helped him be more comfortable taking that risk, right? Right.
1: Well, I'll say this. I, yes, he did take a risk, but Bob also wanted something that no one else had. And at that time, nobody had a Jackson con, you know, design golf course. And Scott Hoffman was a huge, huge, huge part of the project mm-hmm. as well. Huge part of the project. Scott's extraordinarily talented guy. Um, you know, so, you know, yes, he took a risk, but yes, there was gain for him as well in doing that, you know, to a large degree. And, and, you know, again, um, you know, right spot, right time, you know, kind words. And, and, you know, this, one of the things that, you know, Dave and I talk about a lot is like, give us a, you know, give us a set of flags, give us some paint guns, man. And we're like, so comfortable out in the field doing that designing and and really enjoy that. Um, You know, we're still learning the business side of this, to be quite honest. And it's, it's pretty cutthroat. I mean, it really is, you know, when you read things that guys say about you that have never visited your project or never seen you or never met you and are very comfortable saying those things about you, man, you realize at this point in time, I mean, it's, it's, it can be pretty harsh. It really can. So it's nice when you have a guy like Bill core, who's kind enough to step in and say, Hey, the boys are talented. They can do the job.
0: Well, we got to get back to the Mount Rushmore. <laughs> so I wasn't going to let you off the hook.
2: No, I named two of mine I know, and I would put Bill and Ben as a third. Got to mash their face together. Um, The fourth one doesn't come so easy for me. So if you have, Tim, yours, you can chime in and I'll circle back. If I can even think of a fourth.
1: Yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I think Mike Strance was an artist who happened to be a golf course designer. I'm a big, big fan of, 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 of Crenshaw as well. Um, You know, I really enjoy a lot of their golf courses. Um I enjoy I think a lot of what they do. It's 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 distinctly different, I think, from what we do at times. Um but, you know, I still have a great appreciation for it and what they produce ultimately. Um gotta have two more. Um you know I, I think I agree with Dave. I think I think Pete Dye um you know it's int- when he did when he did the stadium course at PGA West, um Tom and I had this conversation. We were doing a project Madison Club in La Quinta, California. And Tom was like a he. He was very, um, he was very positive about what Pete Dye did at at TP, or at uh, okay. at um, PGA West Stadium of Course, which actually shocked me because it is like so antithetical to what Tom Fazio would ever design. But he was so like appreciative of of you know what Pete did, and it kind of put like La Quinta, California, on the map in a way. Um, and, and and so I, that kind of really struck me because you know a lot of designers I think they they only have appreciation for what they do or what people do that's similar to what they do. Right. And, um, and I'll, I'll say this, right. I mean, you know, in golf course design today, um, there's a lot of golf that's being produced that looks a lot like a lot of the other golf that's being produced now. It may be good. Right. Um, but there's a lot of similarity in that, in those design styles, and in, in, you know, the expression of the design. Right. Um, so it will be interesting. Like, where does golf go from here? Because yeah. now we've had 20 years of the minimalism. We've had 20 years of those types of golf courses and that type of design, you know, what's coming next, you know, you know, I don't know. So, you know, strands, Cork Crenshaw, um, and I'll, I'll throw the, I, you know, I grew up playing a bill diddle design, you know, back in the Midwest, <laughs> man. And, you in know, LaPorte, La Indiana, you know, municipal golf course. And it was, it was, you know, that was my stomping grounds, it was right?
0: Johnson Creek. Is that what it's called? It's called Beechwood. Um, Beachwood. Yeah,
1: Beechwood's name of the golf course, but. I um, know.
0: I Thought it was Johnson
1: Creek. Yeah, but you know, Bill Diddle was actually the guy that Pete and Alice went to when they started in golf course design. Yeah. You know, he was out of Indianapolis, and, and Alice lived in Indianapolis, and Pete moved there when they got married. And um, you know, and and you know, did,
0: didn't he say something? I think I remember from the book, Bill Diddle's like, "Why the hell would you want to become a golf golfer?"
1: Yeah, I think pretty much. Yeah, I think that was the quote, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. And and you know, but there's you know there's there's design characteristics that I you know that I grew up playing on that golf course that still stick with me quite honestly, right? And you know, there's not a lot of people out there that like, you know, like, who's Bill Diddle, right? He was one of the, you know, founders of the Golf Course Architects Society, you know, a pretty influential guy kind of back in the day, but, um. He designed
0: a lot of courses.
1: He did design, you know, he wasn't like Bendelow, 36 stakes in an afternoon, right? And, mm. you know, whatever happens after that, we'll see, but, um, but, you know, it's like I say, Dave and I, we're not, we're not golf course snobs. We have an appreciation, I think, for, for what people do and and we know how they do it at times, which, you know, really, I think impresses upon us what the end result is and how they get there. But, um, but there's also, you know, there's also a lot of stuff out there. I mean, here's the thing, you know, and it kind of goes back to, you know, I think a lot of the, the golf writers today and how they view golf course architecture and what it should be and how that kind of dictates the taste of the people that play golf and engage in golf and they, cause they feel, Hey, these writers are the experts, right? If we all looked at golf the same way, if we all design golf the same way, golf would be pretty damn boring, right? Yeah. You need to have that big tent. You need to have that wide bandwidth. You need to have guys that are designing different things and doing things in different ways. So there's different end results, right? Um, and so, you know, I think that should be celebrated, not frowned upon. I, you know, when you, again, when, you know, projects that we work on get critiqued because, well, gosh, they move more dirt than they should have. Who cares? What's the end result, right? And is it different, and is it engaging, and is it fun?
0: Variety is the spice of life. Absolutely. And, it's, and it also goes to, like, and, and the other thing is that, you know, I, I think about this all the time with the Golden Age guys is, like, you know, you start to look at, like, the sophistication of where it was going. You know, Rainer and McDonald, like Langford Moreau, are were – I think more there's some more sophisticated shaping, earth moving with those guys than you know Rayner McDonald had done. They were evolving and they were hitting their peak, and then the depression hit. Mm-hmm. You know, and in architecture, you know, you had them, and then you had Maxwell, who was just condemning the steam shovel. You know, and he was you know minimalist. And it's like, but then the 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 depression and World War II hit, and everything halted. But there was like a very clear like there was maximalism and minimal, like, and both of them push architecture forward, you know, evolution, more new stuff, like, and that's where it has to go. It has to be new stuff. And, and I think like different styles should be celebrated. Well,
1: you know, I'll say this too. I I think, you know, there, I don't know if there's, you know, another sport, if there's another engagement that, um, everyone always tries to kind of identify and, and place, golf course designs in boxes yes. right and in you know it, it's such a oh gosh man I don't know it just it's it, to me it seems like such a fool's errand you know, at times, you know, the, 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 golf course ranking system, right? Hey, if you like a golf course, you know, who cares what is ranked or if this one's higher than that or whatever. Right. I mean, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Right. I mean, listen, some clubs get to put a plaque on the wall and, you know, they're pretty excited about where they are on that list or whatnot. And, and we understand, you know, certain memberships is important. We get that and we understand that, but there's so much effort that is put in into identifying, ranking golf courses. What style is this? What style is that? You know, again, ultimately it's the end user experience that matters, right? Um, it's not necessarily, was it maximal? Was it minimal? Was it this or was it that? Did you have a good time out there today? Did you have shots that were engaging? Did you have things that really got you excited about what you were doing? If you did great, the rest of it doesn't matter. Do you want to
0: go back and play it again? Right. You know, like that to me is always the biggest thing. It's like, God do I, I like real do I real I want to go back and play again. Like I want to hit that shot again. Like mm-hmm. you know, that's the stuff that matters the most.
1: Dave and I say this all the time. If we walk off the 18 green and we want to go back to the first tee, we were successful. End of story.
2: Yeah. Yeah, variety is it's everything. And I think I I hope we're trending this way, but I think in the past um you know, variety comes on different scales, too everyone seems to focus on the variety within the golf course, within those 18 holes, having a good variety of angles and distances and pars and elevations and all that, which is great. But you do that 15,000 times. Now we have no variety from course to course. And I think we need to zoom out a level and think of the actual golf course and the golf experience as having more variety. So just a, a dumb example. I mean, if there was a an 18 hole part five course. I know you're saying it would be fun, but just that concept is variety. It may be very yeah. mundane on paper because it's part five, part five, part five, but if it's executed well, you can have incredible variety within those part fives. And then the course as a whole amongst the collection of golf in the country or the world has immense variety. And so I hope, I hope we can, I hope clients can, you know, um, get on board with it. I hope other designers get on board with it. And I feel like they are, it's slowly starting and I hope it's, it's momentum is growing and it's not just a little blip, but I think golf, you know, uh, on a much more macro scale needs more
0: variety.
1: Yeah. And, and to some extent, I think there's a traditionalizing, if that's a term of yeah. golf in, in America today. Right. And look top golf, right. Here's a, here's a, you know, here's a entity that's been created that has a quote unquote golf experience. That's you know, vastly different, right, from the traditional golf experience that you have, right, just as an example, um, you know, there's there's, there's going to be, I think, more types of golf experiences, whether it's, you know, a, not a traditional 18-hole golf course, right, because that would be, you know, something that's been done so many times before, um, but those are going to be created, and, and I think they're going to be created because there's a need for that, and there's a desire for that, and, um, you know, society's changing, right, right? Um, and, and so, you know, and it's, you know, the, 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 the model of the traditional country club, you know, what that's been for the past hundred years, it'll be interesting to see where that goes moving forward. You give me a club and a ball. I don't care where I am. I'll make some sort
2: of golf fun out of it right in this house right here, going to a hotel, you're putting 400 feet down the hallway. You just, it's a, it's fun to, to hit the ball and try to get it close to a target.
0: I mean, you're talking to somebody that <laughs> logged hours upon hours of wiffle ball golf through my neighbor's front yards. You know, trees were the holes, Yeah, you know, the street was a little water hazard and, you know, me and my buddy would just play up and down the, the street, hacking, if, hacking divots out of our neighbor's yards. If, if,
2: I could ma- wave a wag- <laughs> if I could wave a magic wand over the golfing population. I would wish that all of them just become kids again yeah. because they embrace the spirit of the game and don't have that preconceived construct of what golf should or shouldn't be. They just are enjoying playing the game and, and the game is literally just hitting the ball towards a target. That's all the game is. There's a lot more flexibility
0: in what that can unravel into. All right, David, we're we're letting you off the hook. It's uh you're going to have, Three heads on your Mount Rushmore, you'll be able to leave the fourth blank.
2: Yeah, so you know the, the way I I interpret your question is which architects would I want to kind of see their resume? That, that's how I read that question. And and Strance and Pete Dye and Kurt Crenshaw I would love the. The, the lifestyle to provide me the opportunity to go play all those courses. I can't. Um, but but I, I really would love to. And, and so the fourth person, um, you know, is very well known to us and not to everyone else. But honestly, I got to put Scott Hoffman in that category. Um, he he has never gotten the credit he deserves, you know, I mean, he, he worked a long time under Tom Fazio. That's where Tim and I met him. I have learned a tremendous amount from Scotty. We were fortunate enough for him to join us, uh, you know, JKD for four or five years. He was instrumental in Scottsdale national. I think he is hands down the best, um, router of a golf course. He is absolutely the best grader of a golf course.
1: Yeah, he's doing something in uh, in Nebraska right now that's going to be really, really cool. And you know, Scott's a you know he's um, he's a pretty modest guy. Um, doesn't seek the limelight. Doesn't want the limelight. Um, but he is, he is so, so very talented. Um, he's a great friend of ours and, and, you know, and, and we're hopeful that we'll continue to collaborate, you know, in the future, moving forward, um, on projects. And Scott has a very specific narrow bandwidth of the type of projects that he wants to collaborate on, which is fine by us. we don't um, want to be in that position. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, he is, he is one of the most talented people that no one's ever heard of.
0: It's, uh, you know, the, you guys also, you know, we was we talking about variety. I think you got, we got the first, uh, Mount Rushmore, without Mackenzie on it, so that's exciting you there, you, there you go, new Mount Rushmore <laughs> <laughs> so uh thank you guys uh people can find you you're you're on social media a little bit, you know they... a little bit,
2: mostly Instagram, yeah, that's kind of where we contribute the most, but it's not. I wouldn't call us having a uh, tremendous we're too busy, you know having fun doing work, but um, every once in a while we post some stuff, but we don't have a huge following and don't really. Uh, seek it out but for those that are interested yeah uh, at jkd golf design is where you could find us and uh,
0: look forward to seeing more of your work that's i you know i think uh i'm i'm excited with i know you guys have got a bunch of stuff in the pipeline and uh excited for everybody to see more and more of your work
2: man yeah, we're thankful to be alive in a in a very uh flourishing time of the industry and we'll Ride this wave as long as it's here, but appreciate you having us on and thank you for coming all the way to Scottsdale to spend the day with us.
0: Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode was edited by the great Meg Atkins. Thank you, Meg. And as a reminder, we have a sale in the Pro Shop for you podcast listeners. If you use the promo code winter Blues, you will get 10% off your order. We've got hats. We've got winter hats if you're in, you know, dealing with winter and uh, all sorts of stuff, including prints. So check it out, proshop.thefriday.com And thank you for listening to another episode. We will be back on Friday this week. And we also have Bill Coor coming next Tuesday. So, we got we got some good pods on the docket. So, talk to you soon and thank you for listening.